0: Uh, Good morning. As Simon said, um, my name is Kerry, and I think a lot of of you probably already know me, um, but if you don't, I've been coming here for 13 years, so not long. Um, I'm married to Dave, and we have a daughter called Tegan, and they're both here this morning. Shall we begin by praying? Heavenly Father, Today, as we gather in the great name of your son, Jesus, and know his presence here with us, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, and that we would learn more about who you are. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So our passage today begins with the sentence, on the evening of that first day of the week. That day, of course, was a day like no other. After the awful reality of Jesus's crucifixion and burial on Friday, this Sunday had brought some strange and unsettling events. Early that morning, Mary Magdalene had come distraught to tell the disciples that Jesus's body was missing. A mystified pair of disciples raced to the tomb entering the space to find the linen that wrapped the body of Jesus. But, as Mary had said, no body. Then, a bit later that day, Mary had come to the disciples once again, this time breathless with excitement, and told them, I have seen the Lord. Now, in the evening, instead of celebrating, we find the disciples huddled behind locked doors, John says that the doors were locked in fear of the Jewish leaders. Certainly, they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who were behind the plot to kill Jesus. They were likely afraid for their own lives, afraid of their uncertain futures. The unconfirmed rumors of the resurrection started by Mary had brought neither understanding nor joy. The disciples were clueless concerning the meaning of Jesus' death and disappointed by this presumed dashing of their hopes. Jesus, however, will not be stopped by locked doors. He comes not to confront his disciples with their failures, but to grant them peace. His greeting, Peace be with you, carries the sense of the Hebrew greeting, Shalom, Shalom a blessing that implies more than tranquility, but a deep and holistic sense of well-being, the kind of peace the world cannot give. He spoke with special reference to the state of mind of the disciples, with special reference to the events of the last few days, and with special reference to their future ministry. Peace and not blame... Peace and not fault finding, peace and not rebuke, was the first word which this little gathering heard from their teacher's lips after he left the tomb. It was right and fitting that he should do so, and in full harmony with things that had gone on before. It was a word that would soothe and calm their minds. Throughout Scripture, we find that peace is defined as a blessing from God and is harmonious with his character. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's peace, then, is permanent and secure. When our life circumstances are free of conflict, we can enjoy momentary peace. But when we face things like difficult relationships, health problems or financial crisis, for example, this momentary quiet is disrupted and chaos can rule. However, God offers peace during chaos. His peace doesn't change with the circumstances. It is a cure despite the circumstances. As many of you will know, I spent a lot of time in hospital, and one of the most challenging things for me during that time were the MRI scans. If you've ever had one, you'll know that you are confined in a particularly small cylinder, and if they are scanning your brain, You have the added bonus of your head being secured to the bed by a frame. Many times I was asked to do this and each time I would panic, which meant the doctors would be unable to perform the scan. I was told very seriously that they needed this later scan to determine my treatment. And so I prayed. And Jesus met with me in my fear. I was filled with a deep sense of indescribable peace and was finally able to endure the entire lengthy scan. So we can't avoid ill health, fear and worry, but we can have God's perfect peace in the midst of it all. No matter how stormy our lives get, we can have a feeling of inner peace and rest that exceeds any fix the world can give us. In Christ, we are offered peace with God because we who once were far off have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' sacrifice addresses the root of the problem that the world ignores. By his sacrifice, he bridged the gap that sin introduced between us and God. He bore the punishment for our sin and, in exchange, we are given eternal peace. What Jesus did on that first Easter evening was to show those frightened disciples the same grace and mercy and forgiveness and love that he had always shown. He came and stood among them and simply said, peace be with you. And then to ease their doubts, he revealed his hands and side. No wonder the disciples rejoiced to see him. Not only was Jesus alive and among them, but he had also forgiven them for all they had done and not done over those last dramatic days. Today's passage is also about the ways in which we are called to share that peace and joy with a world so filled with doubt and fear. Jesus did not join his disciples in the upper room simply to celebrate his resurrection with them. He also joined them there to give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. In that locked room, Jesus, bearing recognisable scars, breathed on the disciples. Jesus here seems to refer to the creation of humans and intimates that he himself was the author of that work. The Spirit of God proceeds from Jesus and in so doing, opens the eyes of the disciples. Which brings us to the rest of the passage. What the disciples saw is all that Thomas desired. Often the focus here is on Thomas's doubt. But Thomas was not present when Jesus appeared on the other side of a locked door to greet fearful followers with peace and the instruction to forgive. Thomas's request is merely for what the others experienced. Indeed, this desire for experiential proof is completely normal. The longing for evidence is not the special burden of believers living in an age of science, and Thomas was not the only disciple who wouldn't take someone else's word for it. Maybe you've had this experience when one of your friends comes back from seeing a movie or trying a new restaurant or visiting a beautiful place, Even, sorry, and says to you, you've got to see this. You listen with interest even as you are trying to distinguish what is hype and what is real. It's not entirely right to say that you don't believe the testimony of your friends. It's more that you don't have experience of your own to compare to theirs. To know what you believe about what they're reporting, you'll have to go to the cinema or try the product, or see the sunset in that particular spot. In order to offer your own testimony, you need to have your own experience. The wonder of this moment, however, is Jesus's willingness to meet Thomas exactly where Thomas says he needs meeting. Thomas names what Jesus knew his disciples needed. The door is shut. Jesus appears, nail scars, and all. His offering of peace is followed by an expression of forgiveness, no condemnation for Thomas's request, a simple invitation to touch his scars. In response to this invitation, in response to his own experience, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. Thomas confessed his faith in the risen Christ and incidentally is the first to do so. Out of Thomas's doubt, out of his struggle to honestly deal with his own misgivings, came a profound and powerful confession of faith. This story bears witness then to the fact that Jesus comes to us where we are, in the places where we live, in the ordinary places of our lives, as we sit at the table with family and friends, it is here that Jesus meets us. It is even in the locked rooms of our lives, where we huddle in fear and doubt, that Jesus encounters us, offering us peace. What Jesus says next foreshadows those who will believe because of the testimony of these witnesses. That's you and me. He says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus had triumphed over sickness, sin, death, and sorrow. Now, with Thomas, Jesus conquered unbelief. Jesus sends these followers out with the mission of forgiving the sins that his death has taken away. This encounter, then, is neither about phantom appearance nor solely focused on a doubting disciple. It is how to tell of a world where a woman's witness welcomes wonder. It is how to tell of a world where forgiveness is forever possible. It is how to tell of a world when life is to know the God whose mission is to forgive sins and reconcile communities scattered by oppression. As we experience the story of Thomas, we are invited to trust that Jesus will keep showing up, alive, alive, and with a body that holds together the worst that has happened to him and his risen life. Again and again, in the midst of our doubt and fears, and in the midst of our sin and failings, he will offer that wounded, living body. Our crucified and risen Lord comes to us and says, "'Peace be with you.' Again and again he comes to us and says, "'Do not doubt, but believe.'" Again and again, Jesus forgives us and breathes new life into us. And again and again, he reminds us of our mission, to go and share the peace and the joy and the hope of this new life with a world that often struggles to find peace, joy or hope. I wonder this morning what the locked rooms are in each of our own lives. What locked door do you need Jesus to enter through? be assured that there is no stone too big for him to remove, no place too dark for him to go, no heart too hard for him to soften, no life too broken for him to redeem. Amen.